In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today I'm joined yet again by Tamar Halloran, our Washington correspondent, who's basically moved to Georgia the last couple of weeks, it seems like. How's it going, Tamar? You sick of me yet? No, we want you to stay down here. There's certainly plenty of cover stories to cover in Washington and Georgia these days, and uh, it, ain't, it ain't getting any slower, is it? No way. Um, A lot of these races are still unresolved, uh, starting at the top. Um, Brian Kemp the other day declared victory in in the gubernatorial race, but but Stacey Abrams is not conceding. What's the latest in that race? Yeah, and just a big caveat, we we recorded this um, on Friday, so the vote totals could change a little bit, but we don't what we understand is they might not change drastically. Essentially, Brian Kemp has about a 60,000 vote lead. Stacey Abrams needs a 25,000 more votes, 25,000 more net votes to force this race into a runoff. There are about that many, 24, 25,000-ish absentee ballots and provisional ballots out. Um, not all the provisional ballots will be counted, but you know, we're assuming a majority of them will get counted. Um, and even if she wins all those, it won't be enough to overcome that margin, except Stacey Abrams' campaign says that there's some, some other things that could come. There's litigation they're filing um, to free up some, some other absentee ballots that might be pending in the mail system. Um, they're looking at potential voter irregularities in some precincts that were really busy. And they also point out that, hey, even though all these counties said they're 100% reported, just the other day, 300 or so more votes came in from Cobb County. So they're saying there's still a chance that, that you know, enough votes will come in. Brian Kemp's not waiting. And, of course, Georgia law doesn't require the, 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 the losing candidate to concede. So he went ahead and had a press conference with Governor Deal. He started his transition. He named the chief of staff. And we expect him to kind of go be a little quieter until, until the, these votes are certified, which is expected to be um, on Tuesday or uh, for the counties and, and it's Friday for the state. Yeah, he resigned as Secretary of State, um, which I think really irked Democrats, the the timing of it, because, you know, for months they'd been calling on him to step down. They said there was a conflict of interest that he was counting, you know, overseeing the counting of votes in an election that that he was running in. And he said, no, 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 this won't be an issue. Um, This is the job I was elected to do. And then days after the election, he steps down. Yeah, that really got under Democrat skin. Um, and, 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 you know, a range of high-profile Democratic figures from President Jimmy Carter all the way down have been calling on him to do this because Georgia's never really been 
in that sort of situation. We've had secretaries of state run for higher office. Some of them have stepped down, some of them haven't. Um, but the, but the, the few who ha didn't step down never won their party's nomination, so never really got to this, this, this point in time. Um, and it has been a constant call from Stacey Abrams' allies, if not from her directly herself. Her campaign called them to resign. But I don't think she ever did directly. Either way, um, it has been a constant kind of drumbeat. And then the day after he declares victory, he says, you know what? <laughs> I'm stepping down to, to smooth the transition. The backdrop of that was not just sure he, you know, it'd be easier optically for someone else to certify the elections, but also there was a, there's a lot of litigation out there, but one of the lawsuits that was out there was challenging whether or not he had the, the right to direct a recount or certify his own election. That, that legal action was pending in federal court. And at the moment of the hearing, attorneys were told, uh, basically that, yeah, the case is moot now because he's stepping down. Yeah, and, and Governor Deal very quickly swore in Robin Crittenden, um, who for the last three years has led the Department of Human Services. She's an attorney, and, and actually she will become the first African-American woman to serve in, as a statewide constitutional officer in Georgia's history. So a, a, a neat first there, at least for a few weeks anyway. And, and at the same time, we still have Stacey Abrams' um, launching a very aggressive effort to, to, it's called chasing votes, but she's essentially trying to chase all these provisional ballots down um, to make sure that people who cast the provisional ballots go back and submit their information. A lot of times provisional ballots are cast because, let's say, uh, Georgia has a photo ID law and people forget their photo IDs or people's names don't exactly match in, in the voter registration and they need to come up with a little bit more information like their address or something like that. And so it's, it, the onus is on the, the voter to go back and, and, and show their information so that provisional ballot can be cast. And so what she's doing, her campaign is having phone banks and aggressive efforts to try to make sure they can find every single one of those 21,000 or so votes and make sure people go back and submit the information they need to. Because at this point, they feel like every vote gets them closer to, to not just the runoff threshold, but also to the recount threshold. It really is such a heavy lift when you think about it. I mean, you not only have to reach these voters again, you got to convince them, you know, on a, on a weekday that they have to go back and, and go to the clerk's office and show up with your your ID or, or you know, you got to go out again and, and proactively do all these things. Um, and, and it does seem like that's a, a tough thing to do. Uh, a lot of voters have until I believe it's 5 p.m. today on, on Friday to go do that. And it's, it's an effort that you're also seeing replicated on a smaller scale in this seventh congressional district where Carolyn Bordeaux, the Democrat, is trailing by about 900 votes and is asking the same things of, of her voters. Um, you know, if you voted provisionally because your signature perhaps didn't match or because you didn't have your ID, please show up. But I mean, the hours are ticking and, and it's a weekday. It's, it's kind of a tough thing to do. It's such a close race. It's a, for, let's say for Stacey Abrams, it's, this is essentially going to end up being a, something close to a $30 million campaign. So it's hard to, it's hard to, even even Republicans find it hard to criticize her for wanting every single ballot to be to be counted, to do everything she can. But at the same time, um, they're not going to wait up, you know, to moving forward with the transition, uh, in, in case anything happens. Also, you know, this more cynically speaking, this is not the uh, the end of Stacey Abrams' political career by any means. She got the second highest vote total. Uh, for, for, a Dem for a gubernatorial candidate in Georgia history. Um, she even did Hillary Clinton's vote count. Um, so, you know, she's also looking at what her options down the road, I'm sure. And if she can say at the end of all this that 
um, she fought what, what she's always called an unjust system, and, and she lost, but she fought something that she felt was, was tilted against her and did everything she could to, 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 to uh, count all the ballots, um, you know, then, then she'll, be, she'll be looked at by Democrats as not a, a sore loser, but as someone who, who fought a brave fight. Yeah, her, um, you know, her campaign has hired this this team of lawyers to kind of go through field, um, you know, field a lot of emails and comments from folks who complained about voter irregularities on Election Day. Um, the the Democratic Party of Georgia went and filed a lawsuit um, against a county kind of near Albany seeking an extension for absentee voter or uh, absentee ballots that were mailed because of uh, Hurricane Michael and kind of delays that were associated with with that um, to try and squeeze out some extra votes. And there are several other lawsuits floating around as well to try and um, help her out as well, filed by the NAACP. And with all this happening, it's, it's, it's um, you know, the, the, the Kemp campaign and Republicans are worried that it, it's all eroding the sort of legitimacy of, of what they think is a clear, and what they've called a clear and convincing victory. Um, I don't know about the word convincing because it's such a narrow margin, 50.3% of the vote is where he stands as, as a Friday. Um, but they, they, they feel like all this is sort of, you know, seeding doubts in, in the average voter's mind that Brian Kemp might not have won this, um, that will give him problems, you know, years down the road um, as, he's, as he's looking to govern Georgia. Um, and certainly for, for Stacey Abrams, if she, whatever she does next, if she doesn't end up pulling off a runoff, um, it's something that, again, she can go back to her supporters. She's a hero among so many progressives. And there's even stories being written saying that Brian Kemp's election victory should, should come with an asterisk and you know things like that um, that are that are that are helping burnish her image in the national media as well for for whatever she might do after this. And think about it. I mean, in the days after the election, there are a ton of national reporters down here in Georgia covering Stacey Abrams and her history-making candidacy. And and in the days after, you know, they're not writing stories about how Brian Kemp pulled off this win. They're with Abrams at these press conferences where she's saying, no, we have these lawyers, we're going to fight it. And these are happening, you know, several times a day now between what Kemp has been doing and what Abrams has been doing. So you're, so you're writing, you know, all these reporters are writing that story as opposed to the Brian Kemp is the next governor of Georgia stories. Um, so you can see why the Republicans are, are really going out of their way to kind of show, you know, try and bring legitimacy to, to Kemp's win. You got it. I mean, even look at the AJC's headlines the last couple of days. Uh, you know, Kemp declares victory. Abrams fights on. Uh, Kemp resigns Secretary of State and moves to announce transition team. Abrams vows to seek every vote, right? I mean, so, and, and remember the backdrop of this too, and I'm not, is that these these two candidates are bitter bitter rivals? That's just not, that's not just some sort of hyperbole. They they have long detested each other, um, and you know privately I've heard some Democrats say Stacey Abrams would do something similar to what Brian Kemp is doing. She would also seek to start the transition and say that her victory was 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 clear. Um, and Brian Kemp would maybe not do the same route that Stacey Abrams is doing, but something similar, questioning some of the some of the, the outcomes of the election. Um, but we don't, that's not just hypothetical. What, what we do know is that um, Kemp is, it has, has, a, has a slim, but what it seems to be an unassailable, uh, insurmountable uh, lead. But again, a lot of things can happen over the next couple of days. And um, we'll be watching to see how much those vote totals could change on Tuesday when we're expected to have the county certifying all their votes.
So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about how Kemp won. You mentioned how he has gotten the highest number of votes cast for any or sorry for any governor in the history of Georgia. He had about 1.97 million votes. So that's just short of what Trump got in 2016, I believe, but still highest among, you know, that far surpasses what what Nathan Deal got in 2010 and and 2014. And Abrams herself got about 1.91 million. Um, So like you mentioned, surpassing what Hillary Clinton did here in in 2016. Um, And I just wanted to talk to you about his strategy a little bit. Um, Kemp really tried to mimic what Trump did here in 2016, Um, not spending a ton of time in the suburbs, but really driving up vote totals in kind of your rural counties by really going after the Republican base. You got it. I mean, Kemp used the Trump playbook in Georgia, uh, but then kind of, you know, turbocharged it, right? Uh, Donald Trump won the state of Georgia by five points, even though he lost the metro Atlanta suburbs, and and some of them narrowly, um, for the first time in in decades, Republicans lost some of those areas. Um, so Kemp tried to do the same exact thing, but he tried to out leverage even Trump in some of these areas, and he did. There are some counties that Trump won by 80, 82, 83 percent of the vote, that Kemp won by 85, 86, 87 percent of the vote. And these are very sparsely populated rural areas, but you add up enough of them, and they created what he, what he liked to call his beautiful red wall. At the same time, though, Democrats just clobbered Republicans in these suburban areas. I mean, Republicans narrowly lost Cobb and Gwinnett counties in 2016, and that was a shocker, how close those those counties flipped, but the fact that they flipped. Well, there's nothing narrow about Cobb and Gwinnett um, this year. Both those counties convincingly went to, to Democrats. And not only that, down the ballot, Republicans just got destroyed. I mean, we can talk about the 6th District and 7th District races, but also further down, these state legislative and county commission races were just, you know, jaw-dropping losses for a lot of Republicans. But the biggest one, clearly, is Karen Handel's defeat. Exactly. That was, you know, the 6th District race, of course, last year was the site, you know, the the host of the most expensive congressional battle in history. Some $60 million poured into the district in this this Handel versus John Ossoff race. And not as many people were paying attention this year. I think a lot of folks, including in Washington, thought Karen Handel had it in the bag. Um, You know, the power of incumbency, the convincing nature of her win last year. But she narrowly lost by about 3,000 votes to, to lose. Lucy McBath, a a Democratic gun control advocate, and she, I guess Thursday morning, conceded uh, the race. And, you know, uh, Kemp's strategy obviously worked very well for the base in rural parts of the country. He talked a lot about, um, you know, this Abrams gaffe about, um, you know, people shouldn't have to seek jobs in agriculture to... uh, to, to make a living. And, and while that plays really well in rural parts of the state where there are a lot of farmers, that's not exactly the sort of thing that will really rally your voters in metro Atlanta. Here, it's much more about kitchen table issues like the economy, tax cuts, health care. Um, and especially when it came to health care, that was not a, a primary issue for, for Kemp. Um, it really was for Abrams. So that left People like Karen Handel, Rob Woodall, a lot of these state house candidates kind of in a bind. They really had to kind of carve out their own path. And in such a loud, busy, distracting election year, it's hard for voters to, to pay attention. I mean, Kim's strategy kind of says it all. 
um, he did a bunch of bus tours throughout this entire campaign and the runoff cycle and the primary cycle and the general election cycle. And they basically all, except for I think his last bus tour right before the, the election, they all sidestepped Metro Atlanta, which showed clearly that he was devoting resources towards rural areas where he would get huge crowds. He'd show up in towns of a couple hundred people and get exceed the entire town population at some at, at an event at a sausage store or Piggly Wiggly or, or you name it. Um, he'd get these giant crowds to show up, but he would sidestep the suburbs and where he knew he would do a little bit worse. Um, and that paid off, that paid off for, for Democrats. Secondly, too, the gun control issue was such a big one, I think, in the suburbs. Um, AJC polls showed that a majority of Democrats and even uh, you know, a bigger number of Republicans were willing to to support some form of gun control restrictions. And with the spate of shootings, including the, uh, the, the murders of 11 people in Pittsburgh at a, at a synagogue, um, a couple, just a few days before the election, I think it was about uh, two weeks before the election, that helped galvanize Democratic, I think, I, I suspect Democratic gun control um, messaging to, to a lot of the moderate white women who dominate in the suburbs and who are, who are attracted to, to Democratic calls, including from Lucy McBath, for more gun control legislation. Exactly. The, so this is the Democrat who ultimately defeated Karen Handel. And, you know, she is the survivor of of gun violence. Her her only son was was fatally shot in 2012 in um, in Florida. And she kind of devoted her life to that. That was one of the main tenets of her campaign and really campaigned hard on that issue. You juxtapose that with Kemp, who in the lead up to the primary had that that really notable ad, you know, his Jake ad where he's polishing his shotgun, making, a, you know, kind of making jokes about that sort of thing. So I think for a lot of the suburban women that people like Karen Handel really had to appeal to that put her in a bind. Yeah, you got it. And, and what's clear, too, I mean, it's it's these, these down ticket losses are really going to uh, hamper Republicans in 2020. There's no doubt now. Um, yeah, we'd be hard-pressed to find uh, a, a Republican elected official who would say now that Georgia is not a legitimate battleground for 2020. Uh, because when your vote totals, when your margins go from Nathan Deal won by eight points in, in 2014, Donald Trump won by five points, and if, and if this, the margin still ends up holding, Brian Kemp wins by about a point and a half. And so every 2020 Democratic potential candidate has already been to Georgia to, to campaign with Stacey Abrams. But now that they've also planted seeds getting ready for their potential runs, and they're going to be eyeing Georgia's 16 electoral votes in a major way um, to sort of reshape the political map. Exactly. And even if Rob Woodall holds on in this uh, Gwinnett and Forsyth-based 7th congressional district, I mean, he's going to have a target on his back as well, too. And you're going to start to see a lot of Democrats kind of come out of the woodwork who maybe thought in years past that a Democrat couldn't really compete in uh, the North Atlanta suburbs who all of a sudden are saying, oh, hey, you know, if Carolyn Bordeaux could get really close, um, you know, I'll challenge somebody for state house. I'll challenge somebody for, for Congress. Um, so, the, so, you know, the results this year clearly show that what happened in 2016 was not a blip. This could be more of a long-term trend. Exactly. And the question is, do we have a legitimate realignment? And it certainly seems like uh, we might. We don't know if that's a realignment just driven by being Donald Trump at the top of the ballot because, um, we know that his approval ratings in, in, in Metro Atlanta have long uh, suffered while he is, uh, he's, he's, he's excelled in rural parts of the state. And we also don't know how much it has to do with Brian Kemp being at the top of the ballot because, of course, Kemp 
inextricably tied himself to Donald Trump and also ran a series of provocative primary campaign ads with shotguns and, and chainsaws and pickup trucks that weren't exactly uh, meant to cater to suburban uh, voters, especially to suburban, to suburban women. Um, but we, what we definitely, definitely do know is that, you know, Georgia's legislature is going to be reshaped by this trend um, next year. We've got about a dozen state legislative seats, mostly in the suburbs, that have all flipped. We have five in Gwinnett County. We have a range of them in Fulton. We have all three Republican members of the legislature from DeKalb are wiped out. Those were all replaced by Democrats. And we even have a candidate in Henry County um, who lost the special election convincingly just last year and won it convincingly this year. So that just shows you how, how quickly this suburban shift has gone on. And one thing I do want to note in the lead up to 2022 is, or 2020 as well, is that um, that race will will take on even more importance because, of course, after 2020 is when there will be the next census and we're going to start redrawing legislative districts. And so that'll determine who who's able to kind of control the levers of power in Georgia for the next 10 years. So there will be even more pressure to kind of come out with good, viable candidates. And it's really going to be a bloodbath. You got it. And remember, not, not, not just the president on the ballot in 2020, but also, as you well know, Senator David Perdue, who is getting ready for a really tough re-election fight of his own. And there's a number of Democrats that are kind of swirling. No one's announced formally yet, but there's a number of Democrats who are making it clear that they're, that they're at least eyeing this race. And those names that I've heard include Columbus Mayor Teresa Tomlinson, State Representative Scott Holcomb, former 6th District candidate John Ossoff, the Reverend Raphael Warnock, who is the pastor of Martin Luther King Jr.'s church. And one more name, you know, depending on how this all goes, could be Stacey Abrams. Exactly. And a lot of the Democrats that we've been talking to were very closely watching Abrams' performance in the governor's race this week because they wanted to see if she was going to do any better with her more unapologetically progressive platform, as she called it, than uh, the Democrats who were running statewide in the past, like Michelle Nunn, who took more of kind of a centrist tack. And because she, she clearly did best their performance, perhaps we're going to see a slate of more liberal candidates challenge Purdue. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it seems like the progressive, um, you know, Republicans call it the progressive experiment, but um, it doesn't look like it, it's going to be an experiment. I do have to say one thing, though. The one major race um, that is in a runoff in, in Georgia, we, we do know for certain this race is a runoff, it does involve a centrist Democratic candidate, and that's John Barrow against Brad Raffensperger uh, on December 4th for Secretary of State. And that's a really interesting uh, matchup because, you know, there's a, lot, there, there's a lot less voter interest in, in these runoffs, especially if there is no gubernatorial race at the top of the ticket. And these are two candidates that aren't exactly um, super uber popular with their, with their party's uh, core base. I mean, you've got Brad Raffensperger, who's a Republican, um, who um, is not a long time, he's not a well-known figure at the state capitol. Um, he, he, he emerged from a crowded primary earlier in the race by spending a lot of money on TV ads, but he's not a well-known figure. Um, and you've got John Barrow, who picked up a lot of Republican votes um, because of his centrism, his centrist policies. He ran an ad that was kind of famous in Georgia um, at, with showing him sort of wearing blue jeans and a denim jacket in front of a, a, a pasture. And he said, I'm a Democrat, but I won't bite you. I mean, that was kind of his his more centrist appeal. It'll be interesting to see how he, 
how he can, if he can galvanize the progressives at the party's core to come out and vote for him in December. Exactly. And Barrow, of course, has a following of his own after all his years in Congress. He, he had such a um, target on his back for so many years. Uh, state legislators had actually moved his district, wasn't it? It was from, he started in Athens and had to move to Augusta, if I have it correct. Um, you know, they were trying to, to kind of write him out, you know, kind of create a Republican district. And for years, he was able to, to hold on. So he kind of has that legend behind him, uh, definitely some name recognition. But at the same time, these runoff elections tend to elect your, or sorry, tend to attract your, your party faithful. So typically an older and a whiter crowd. So that could definitely work in Raffensperger's favor. You got it. And Barris, really interesting because he has roots in like all over Georgia. He's lived in Athens, Augusta, and Savannah. Uh, for his congressional districts, and 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 now he he also lives in Metro Atlanta in Phoenix Springs, um, and he does he he has picked up a lot of Republican votes, especially in those parts of of the state that he used to represent. Um, but again, you know, Democrats might be queasy with some of his past stances too. I mean, if I remember correctly, uh, well, he always supported gun rights expansions. He voted against Nancy Pelosi. He voted against parts of of, of Obamacare over the years. Um, and so those votes, you know, aren't exactly <laughs> thrilling to a lot of progressives these days. Exactly. Well, tomorrow we, we have a lot more to, <laughs> to watch over the next few weeks. You'll be going back to Washington, but you'll still be, of course, keeping tabs on all this stuff. And so will we. So follow all the latest at myhac.com and politicallygeorgia.com. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.